Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. So today we have Todd Herman on the podcast. Herman is a performance advisor to Olympians, pros, and business leaders, and he creates proven systems to help teams and achievers win with less stress. Herman's latest book is The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Scott, well, I mean, it's a pleasure. You've had a lot of my friends on here, and uh, well, I just appreciate the podcast and you know the topics that you talk about. So I'm I'm happy to bring this topic to uh, to your crowd too. Thanks, thanks. So um, people can't see, but I'm wearing my uh, Captain America shirt. I'll take a screen capture. <laughs> I'll include that in the show notes, which that's actually my pajamas that I sleep in every night of my life. Uh, that's hilarious. But I would say that maybe that would be my alter ego. I don't know. Maybe I'll change after after we chat today. But I'd love to hear about, you know, like, I think you said it took like 15 years to write this book. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I started a lot working of patience. With, yeah, well, I didn't start writing it 15 years ago. I've been working with this concept and this idea with, you know, my pro Olympic athletes and then, you know, public figures and, you know, entrepreneurs for the last 16 years. So I've been, wow. I've been bugged and poked and prodded for a very long time to get this out. And, um, you know, I use the excuse of my dyslexia for not writing it. You know, for me, I, I, I come from in my peak performance and sports science business, we a lot of the work that we do has to be more evidence based. I think there's, you know, I think one of my great frustrations about the self-help personal development world is that there's so much information that has been passed on for decades that is not proven to work. And, you know, I'm paid to help people perform. And so I only, you know, continue to have clients if they're getting better results. 
and this idea is just it taps into one of the few things that makes human beings unique on this planet, which is our creative imagination. And it gets lost and people forget to continue to develop it. And so an alter ego really taps into that and helps people kind of unlock that capability that's nested inside of them. Yeah, for sure. So I would like to zoom in the dyslexia thing for a second because uh, yeah. I grew up with a learning disability as well, an auditory disability. And, and talking to a lot of people who grew up with disabilities, it's almost like we create alter egos as children to help us cope with being mm -hmm. treated as though we're less than in some way. Or yeah. I, mean, I personally created huge alter egos when I was a kid. Wow. I had this like, I would pretend I was this like Olympian water polo champion. And when I would go swimming in my grandma's pool, I would enact the whole game in my head, you know, yeah, which yeah, always yeah. had me winning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There was never a version of the game where I lost. <laughs> yeah. That's a wonderful alter ego then if, he, if, if it's winning all the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you think there's something too when you're treated like yeah. as the totality, like there's something deep here. There's something deep I'm trying to put my finger on. Like, you know, when someone is reduced to a monolithic label, like learning disabled, yeah. Doesn't there a natural human tendency to want to rebel against such a single labeling? Well, I think that's why also when someone says, hey, what do you do? Or when you talk to anyone who has a uh, has a website they got to put up, the about me page is the hardest thing for anyone to write, right? Because it's yes. like, I got to reduce myself down into just a few paragraphs or something. But to your point, I will say that 82% of all of my professional clients I have referred to, off to therapists to work with them on traumatic things that happened to them in the past. And it's a, it's a recurring theme amongst people who do perform at a, a high level. The danger with it and that I found was that some of them would identify that as being their edge. And they felt like if they lost that edge, that they were going to somehow lose their competitive advantage maybe. Mm. And again, I'm not a qualified therapist. That's not what I do. I would not, I'm not trained in that. And I think maybe the world would be probably a better place if more people stayed inside their lanes. Um, you know, I do, you know, one thing and I'm excellent at it. And that's, you know, performance coaching and, and crawling around inside the six inches between the ears and, and giving people proven tools and strategies to help move past resistance or get their capabilities out there. But that idea of creating worlds, it's such a natural, innate human quality. The great thing I talk about inside the book that I didn't invent alter egos. They're a part of the human psyche. And the great thing is, is I feel like this book is a great remembering for people that you did this as a kid. We all played with superheroes in our heads or we pretended to be our favorite sports star or we were a nurse when we were playing make believe or a princess or a cowboy or an astronaut, whatever. But there's this time where we start to develop and people say, oh, well, you need to you know, act your age or grow up. And then we internalize that as, okay, well, the things I was doing as a kid are childish. And so I need to move on to doing adult things, which is being more serious. And, and yet using an alter ego has nothing to do with being childish. It's definitely childlike. And I think there's a huge difference between childish and childlike. And I think if, uh, and for me, especially as well, having that playful attitude internally helped me navigate many of the challenges that I faced throughout life. And so that dyslexia that I had helped me face down a world and an industrial educational system that wasn't built to help me succeed. And so I used my, again, creative imagination to help navigate that. And then you take a look at People with quote unquote learning disabilities, whether it's ADD or dyslexia, what have you, 
you take a look at the career paths of many of those people, they have a higher propensity towards going into things like entrepreneurship. And it's because we've built a superpower at a young age of creative problem solving, which is really what entrepreneurship is or any sort of creative expression. And I'm excited to kind of, you know, maybe lead this charge of bringing this idea back out to people and show how it's actually the most authentic version of you that you could actually have. This isn't about being fake. And this isn't about trying to trick people and deceive people. Anytime you're trying to do things with your actions and behaviors that are about deceiving someone else, that's definitely inauthentic. This is about you understanding at your core that there's this creative possibility that you have and to tap into it so that you can be more intentional about who and what you want to go and show up with out on that field of play, whatever it might be for you. Nice. Well, I like that. I would like to unpack that more as we yeah. literally unpack the layers of the self. Yeah. So right now you are Todd, yes. right? You're not wearing your glasses. <laughs> um, you're not Richard. Mm. So this gets into some like multiple personality shit level here. Yeah. Like, like when does Richard come out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I, I just, you know, I, yeah. I saw a preview for M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, you know, coming out. What's the difference between multiple personality disorder and uh, this, what you're proposing? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, in the, the, the psychology world has actually gone under a massive upheaval the last few years where there's been some fundamental theories that have been basically that were founded upon experiments that can't be replicated right now. One of the fundamental principles of psychology for the longest time was that the people who had the best mental health saw themselves as a single self. And so single self theory was a very, very prominent part of psychology. And yet that entire world has shifted. And now it's one of the fastest growing areas of psychology is multiple self theory. And multiple self theory is actually understanding that, no, we have multiple selves that go out into these different fields that we or roles that we play in life and context matters. And that's what I've been doing for the longest time is helping people understand that contextually that field that you're trying to compete on, whether it's the tennis court or the football field, or it could be in the boardroom, in your business, or even when I go home to my three little kids, that's a field of play. Like that's a stage and that's a place that I'm going to try and bring my best to so that I get great results with my kids as a parent. So everyone understands that who you are in business, like how you show up and then who you are with your friends, there's a different element of your personality that's showing up there, right? Yeah. You know, like you're not the same or even when you go home to your parents like me, I mean, we were coming home from Disneyland when I was 10 years old and on the airplane ride back to Canada where I grew up, I left my brand new Disneyland 30th anniversary wallet on the airplane and first time mm-hmm. I lost something. And yet to this day, I'm forgetful. My mom just branded me as being forgetful. And I, <laughs> and I don't have a forgetful mind, but that's how my mom treats me. That's how moms but, are. My mom says like, you don't have any common sense. I was like, how do you know? That's not true. <laughs> yeah. like, you, that's a narrative you created about me. It's like partially yeah. true, but not yeah. all of me. Yeah. Yeah. And so context matters. And so what I'm saying to, when I'm working with people Are there elements of your value system that are creeping in to the way that you're behaving on that field that are actually hurting your performance? I'll I'll give you a case in point from the book. Um, I talk about one of my uh, tennis players, you know, professional tennis players, Rachel, who was one of these athletes that just naturally, well, worked very hard at it and was better than, you know, most everyone else. What was her name? 
Rachel. That's right. I remember the story of Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. And so she would get out onto the court and she would immediately get up on people very quickly. And then she would do the proverbial, take the foot off the gas and allow the other athlete to kind of gain some momentum. And the, and the most dangerous thing in sport, really in business as well, is momentum. The moment you give someone an, that's an average player momentum, that begets confidence, which then gives someone certainty. And um, now, as soon as you become certain that you can actually beat someone, that's a just a deep resonant belief. Now, all of a sudden, there's an equalization between Rachel, who is at a far higher capability than this other person. And uh, she was kind of had the moniker of someone who should be winning championships, but wasn't winning championships. Anyways, I started working with her and uh, was trying to kind of crack the nut on her a little bit about why this is happening. And it turned out that fairness is one of her fundamental values in life. Nice. She's uh, very much like, a, you know, just fairness for everyone and sort of justice and all that. And the experience uh, after I kind of came to that conclusion with her, when we were out for lunch one day, because she was getting angry with me that I wouldn't let her pay the bill after I had already paid the previous two lunches or something. And I was like, oh my goodness, fairness, that's what's getting in her way. Yeah. And so she would start to feel bad that that other person was getting beat so badly mm. at her core. And it was happening at a very unconscious level, just like most things do. And she would take the foot off the gas and let that person in. And so on that field of play, fairness does not matter. you know. And in fact, in sports, you not giving 100% and you not defeating the other person as you can robs that other person of a possibility to really change their mindset. Because if Rachel actually beat people the way that she could, she might actually cause that person to go away and go, wow, there is a big gap between me and the best. I need to get onto that court more and practice more. And so anyways, that, that new contextual self that Rachel brought to the tennis court now Values stayed on the sidelines and we used, you know, the idea of an alter ego to come out so that Rachel could act and behave through that vehicle to help bring her best self forward. I love that. And so that's the heroic self, I guess, is yes. what you're yeah. equating with exactly. the best self. Let's talk yeah. about the difference between what you refer to the heroic self, the trap self and the core self. There started to become so many selves that I started to uh, not be able to make sense of who I like. What am I right now? You know, I don't yeah. I, I'm all confused. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in the book, I have this model where I talk about just the different layers of, you know, how a human being's identity gets created. Yeah. And um, what we need to understand is that there is this core self that all of us have, which is just almost pure potentiality. It's pure possibility. It's like that infant that comes out has not been shaped by society by any stretch of the imagination yet. Ooh, creative and potential creative potential and it's sitting inside of us. When you recognize that it's there, it has not been lost. If someone believes that it's gone, it's a very dangerous place for people because now hope is gone. And mm. so the fact that everyone is even, if someone is even listening to this, that means that at your core, you do honor the fact that that is there. And again, the way that we internalize it in our minds is when we put our head down on the pillow at night and we might beat ourselves up because we didn't take the actions today that we wanted to, or, you know, oh, I wish I would have said this in that moment instead of this, or I wish I would have raised my hand, or I wish I would have spoke up, or I wish I would have, you know, asked that person who is perfect for my business, you know, to say, let's get together, let's meet, or let's do something together. But for whatever reason, resistance gets in the way. 
And that's what I talk about in the book, where that's your trapped self, where you are being influenced by the worries of how you're going to be perceived to others, the judgments of others, the criticism. It could be imposter syndrome that sits there. There's deep trauma that can definitely affect people. And that narrative that we create around who and what we are, which is not true. It's not truly who we are, because who you are is sitting inside of this core self. But on top of this core self, I talk about how a trapped self ends up showing up when you don't feel like you're getting the results like you know that you can. And you're living in what I call an ordinary world, right? Mm. It feels ordinary to you because it's not filled with the color that you know that you can bring to it. And, you know, the forces of, you know, I just kind of use this sort of metaphorical story in the book of like, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And I talk about just the distinction that's really healthy that we understand that just like Carl Jung talked about with the shadow self, I just simply call it the enemy. The enemy pulls us into the ordinary world and it uses the things of, you know, the judgment of others and the worry about what, how we're going to be perceived or it uses, you know, imposter syndrome and, and scares us and brings us away from, you know, breaching that comfort zone. But conversely, there is the extraordinary world for us. The extraordinary world has no less challenges, no less situations that could challenge us, obstacles. But the reason it's extraordinary is that we start operating from an inside-out approach Hmm. where we're acting very intentionally with who and what we want to bring to that field of play that we're going out to perform on. For me, it could be me being that dad, and I want to be very intentional about, you know, who is showing up for my kids. Hmm. Um, And that's, it's that, and what happens, the reason I call it the heroic self is because at the end of the day, you feel like you really showed up, like, and it's that internal kind of feedback loop of, you know, you feel like you wore the S on the chest today, or in your case, the Captain America shield kind of thing. Mm. Whereas the trapped self typically will operate from an outside in, right? We're worried and we're always engaged in our mind of thinking about what other people are thinking of us. And anytime you operate from that point of view, it traps you because there is no operating from how you want to show up and what you know that you can do. It's from you operating on what you think others want you to do. And that's what traps people. Yeah. And again, I just keep linking this back to being labeled with a learning disability. Like mm. it's got to be part of why you're so interested in this topic, even subconsciously, yeah. you know, like you well, probably I mean, felt trapped. Yeah, I did. But I didn't get labeled until I, I didn't get di- diagnosed with dyslexia until I was 21. Really? After a car accident. So I, kind of, I, went, I went through oh, all my wow. schooling, you know, and I was the typical class clown. But when I unpacked people, why I was, when I, when I actually got diagnosed, I was like, Oh my goodness. Now I know why I did the things that I was doing in class. Because what happened was, you know, you're sitting in class and they give you like a quick little 15 minute reading assignment, right? Yes. You know, and I would struggle my way through it. And people, there's like 29 types of dyslexia that are out there. And my type is the type that, you know, in a chunk of text, like say in a paragraph, by the time I get down to the end of the text, I've jumbled up the kind of meaning of the sentences and now there's just a confusion that's happening in my head. So I need to reread the paragraph over and over and over and over and over again before I kind of get sense of it. So someone else just reads the paragraph. I got to reread it like 27 times to understand. Yeah. It. So given the reading assignment, I'm there's no there's no chance I'm getting through that thing. And so what I would do is about two minutes left, I would start tapping people's shoulders around me saying, hey, what did you think? Or, you know, were there any takeaways from you so that I could actually use their takeaways if I got called upon to answer the teacher's question? Um, but also what would happen, and I learned this, is because I'm distracting the people around me, my teacher would, you know, give me, uh, you know, call me out or give me heck or whatever. And because they just talked to me, 
Mm. the chances of them coming back to me to ask me a question were slim. Mm. So I ended up winning. I didn't get tasked with answering the, hey, Todd, what did you think about, you know, Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath and what he just experienced in chapter, you know, five. And it was after I got diagnosed with dyslexia, I was like, oh, wow, that's why I really acted out the class clown thing a lot. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I was pretty much the class clown as well. Yeah, but to your point, the yeah. moment we get the moment we get labeled, we feel like we get trapped. That's yeah. why, like I said, an about me page or a resume is so difficult because what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a box, yeah. and you feel like you're trapping yourself. However, when you start operating from this mindset of this is context on this field of play for business or for my resume, this is the self that I am explaining to people as to who I am. Of course, I'm not going to give, you know, everyone the information of like the five sports that I play, you know, in my spare time and, you know, what I do with my children on Tuesdays and Wednesdays or whatever the case might be. Just this idea of really compartmentalizing the self that's showing up is really healthy, which, you know, you had asked the question around, you know, is this Todd showing up or Richard? And what you were kind of referring to was, <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, to give people some background, when I first started in business, I was 21 and I was so insecure about the fact that I looked like I was 12. And, <laughs> you know, and I had, I had used an alter ego when I played uh, uh, football and I was, a, you know, I went on and had college scholarships. I was a nationally ranked badminton player as well. And when I went on the football field, I mean, I was in high school six feet and I was 156 pounds. I mean, there was not a chance that I was this, I wasn't this physically gifted human. Mm. And I could, I could feel really insecure about the fact that I was so light, but I wasn't going to take that insecurity out there. So I built up and I had already played with these ideas for so long. I went out there as Geronimo on because I'm a oh, massive nice. Native American buff. I love the Native American culture. Isn't that cultural appropriation? <laughs> well, when I mean, you get sure. criticized for that, <laughs> yeah, well, it may very well be. Yeah. yeah, so I went, um, so I went out there as Geronimo, and I was also carrying this tribe in my mind of Walter Payton, the Hall of Fame football player, and Ronnie Lott, this whole thing. And I was acting through them and their power. And there was, I had no Geronimo's mindset, had no worries and concerns about how big or small he was. I showed up and it allowed me to pull all of my capabilities out there. Actually, it allowed me to find the zone and flow state as well because I was acting through my creative imagination, which is a gateway to the zone. And so when I got into business, I was like, wait a second, I use this whole Geronimo idea in football. Why don't I bring Geronimo into the business? And then I was like, well, that doesn't kind of work because Geronimo was very aggressive and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> so context matters. But I had... Um, I was like, well, how do I want to be showing up? Because right now I'm, you know, I lack confidence. I'm insecure about how young I look and, you know, the fact I don't have college degrees behind me on this topic or something. And I was indecisive. So I was like, Geronimo doesn't work. But when I think of like all the people that thought that growing up, they all had glasses. So why don't I go and get a pair of glasses and that can be what activates this alter ego because when I played football, as soon as I put on that helmet and clicked that chin strap, boom, that's when Geronimo showed up. Mm. And so I, I wanted that podium and that artifact to help activate. So that's what I did. I lived in, uh, I mean, I live here in New York City now and have for a long time, but back then I lived in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I went to West Edmonton Mall, which was the largest mall in the world at the time. Mm. And I uh, went to Lens Crafters and bought myself non-prescription glasses to do my reverse Superman, I called it. Superman put on glasses to become Clark Kent. 
I put them on to become my Superman version of myself in business. And those glasses, they meant that what I was activating in that moment were the traits of confidence, decisiveness, and being articulate. Mm. And that's what helped me bridge the gap that I had internally between Todd being insecure, but what I wanted to go and do. And yeah. so that had no, that had nothing to do with whether I was being inauthentic because that was actually me bringing my best my my best version or like I say in the book that heroic version of myself so I could serve clients. Yeah. And so right now you had said I don't know if I'm talking to Todd because I don't have my glasses on. But what happened is exactly what I share in the book. This great quote from uh, the kind of golden age actor Cary Grant. Yeah. He had this uh, he had this great quote where he said I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be. And I finally became that person or he became me or we met at some point. And it's such a useful visual to think that who you are today and how you're defining yourself with your narrative is almost like you think of like uh, a Venn diagram of two circles. It's this, this is how you're defining yourself now. But then you have this vision of like how you truly do want to be showing up. And it's a separate circle. There's some, there's some friction and gap between Mm -hmm. the two. But then over time, with you acting through this idea of an alter ego, you actually bring the two closer together and they meet at some point. So I don't need those glasses anymore. I simply mm. just wear them now for dress. I mean, back in 1999, when I got those glasses, it was not cool to go and buy, buy a pair of glasses for dress. This is a new phenomenon. Now I do because I like wearing them. But, you know, I became that person. And the only thing I would change in uh, Cary Grant's quote is the word pretended. Because this has nothing to do with pretending. Mm. This is about, I would say, change it to, I activated somebody I wanted to be, and I finally became that person. Activate is the word that I care about. Yeah, that's really good. And you're answering a lot of questions that I like was going to ask. Sorry. So <laughs> no, so it's good. It's, it's just automatically in the flow of things. Because I was going to say, isn't the goal to have healthy integration of these various sides so we don't feel like a fragmented self? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're 100% right, but most people feel fragmented. I mean, how people feel fragmented is when the results that you're getting in life do not connect with what you know you have on the inside, right? Like, I mean, I, I mean, my great frustration, what's, I don't know how the quote exactly goes, so I'm going to butcher it, is that the ignorant are cocksure and the skilled lack confidence, something mm-hmm. like that, right? Like there's, I don't know how many smart people academics, people who've actually done the work feel so insecure about getting themselves out there. And yet the people who shouldn't actually have an audience and shouldn't be out there having eyeballs pay attention to them are the ones who have all the confidence and and lead people off of a cliff a lot of times. I mean, and again, that is the story of a lot of the self-help world. Again, like Scott, I wrote this book 22 years into my career. A lot of people write a book six months in and they go, well, I'm going to write a book because uh, that's the way that you position yourself as an expert. And uh, I have six over 16,000 hours working with people one-on-one, you know, that is a phenomenal amount of time to truly see what high performing elite people are truly using to perform and what people who are struggling are doing. And that golden thread that started to show up for me in the beginning was that, man, my most consistent, the clients that are consistently performing to their capability, they keep on referencing this idea of a character. When I step out, I go out as a different version of myself. You know, they wouldn't use the word alter ego specifically, but they would say persona and they would say these things. And I'm like, 
that's amazing because I did the same thing when I played football and that's kind of what I did when I started or that's what I did when I started my business. And then I started unpacking it. I'd go back through my notes, started calling back up old clients and go, remember when you had said this thing about this character? Can you tell me about that? And I started kind of unraveling things and putting things into a process. And, and that's all I did with the book was, again, I didn't invent alter egos. They're a part of the human consciousness. Everyone's used them at some point in time in their life. So I don't own it. But what I just did was I just codified the process for how to build one out responsibly, healthy, so that it really does bring out the the truly heroic part of who you are. Good. I and like again, it. Yeah. And, and again, Cicero said it. Cicero was the first person to coin the phrase mm-hmm. in 44 BC. And I love the way that he said it from the very beginning. And if people just have this one takeaway, mm-hmm. um, this is it. The root of the word actually means the other eye or trusted friend. And I think that in most people's minds, if they brought another ally in between the six inches of their ears, and it's that trusted friend that helps them get the best of themselves out there, instead of always just having this circular merry-go-round conversation with themselves, which can oftentimes spiral people down into a darker place, that alone is a very healthy way to think of it. The alter ego is a trusted friend to help you navigate the natural difficulties that we have when we're trying to be ambitious and do things and really bring this fantastic creative possibility that we all have inside of us out onto the field. It's great. It's like your self-compassionate self. Yeah. 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 I like that. Well, let's get into some nitty gritty practical yeah. things because, you know, like how do you become you? So <laughs> let's start with the wow mindset. Let's yeah. get into the wow mindset right now. Sure. So, you know, I had done this study in this in the sports world back in uh, early 2000s around why why are some athletes who are at the top of their class just a couple of years later not playing their sport? And we did this study in the uh, province of Ontario of the 200 top hockey players. I mean, hockey is obviously a religion in Canada. And so these are the 200 top hockey players at the age 13, 14, going into this next phase, which is the phase right before they get drafted into the National Hockey League. And I wanted to see how many people three years later were still playing the sport. So we tracked all the data. And then we saw that out of the 200 top athletes, there was only 24 people who were still playing the sport. Now, these are the top of the top. Mm. That's a huge drop off in numbers. Okay, so then why was it? Well, around 80% of the reason why was because of coaching and parental pressures and stresses was, was the number one cause by a long shot. Injury was another. And another one was just they were playing multiple sports and they decided to pursue another path. But we wanted to look even deeper into it. Because a lot of the stuff that were reasons why they were saying that they had quit was circumstantial and it wasn't based on skill. So when we looked into it further, we found this kind of owl mindset is what I call it and the wow mindset. Friend Carol Dweck, who wrote the fantastic book, Growth Mindset, calls it fixed mindset and growth mindset, right? And so we just happened to be doing separate studies. She was in the academics, I was in sports, and we kind of you know ended up coming to the same place. But an owl mindset person is someone who they're very much motivated by pain, by, you know, the lion is chasing you right now. And so you're going to sprint away from it. The moment you get some distance, you stop because the only motivation that you had was to get away from that danger. Whereas a wow mindset individual is motivated very much more intrinsically and they're motivated by growth, possibility, adventure, by curiosity, 
all fantastic qualities that we all have intrinsically or exploration as another one. And the subtle difference between the wow and the ow type individual is if you could have two people that are climbing the same mountain, let's say, and they both make the same amount of progress after a week. And after that week is done, what an owl mindset individual will do is the very first action they will take is they will pick their head up and they will look to the top of the mountain. And what that does is it drops people into what I call the chasm of despair because you've just put in a bunch of effort and then you look and you see how much further you have to go, which is important because you've now just created the frame in your mind of a gap and you go, oh man, I've put in all this effort and look how much further I have to go. And so it creates this bit of a self-defeating self-talk. Whereas on the other hand, this wow mindset individual has got to the exact same point, standing next to the other person even, and the very first action behaviorally that they do is instead of picking up their head and their eyes gazing to the top of the mountain, they first quickly look over the shoulder to see how far they've gone. And that frame of mind, they immediately see their growth. Oh, look how far I've come. Oh, Jesus, see that big rock that was, I thought that was like, you know, a day ago. Look, at that's actually three days ago. Look how far away that is. Whatever it might be in their head. But they're seeing that's the chasm of confidence that now they've, they've crossed that. And they and and they now they'll still look to the top of the mountain, but they've again they've just filtered their mind through look how far I've come, and then they look to the top and they go oh perfect you know I've made my way. It's the subtlest of distinctions between people, and so in all of the work that I do with clients, the way that we set up the relationship, the way that I set up my like online programs is there is a constant recording of wins and achievements, so that people start cataloging these milestones more. And when you do that, you start to wire your mind more naturally to that of someone who is growing, expanding, exploring, and you're no longer always going to be motivated by the pain of something. You're going to be motivated by the growth towards something, which is really important. Yeah. Abraham Maslow distinguishing deprivation yeah. needs and being needs or growth needs. Yeah. Or growth motivation versus deprivation motivation. And again, I, now to create a caveat with this. So that's, that's all nice and wonderful. But here's what we all know. The most powerful form of motivation is actually pain. To get someone going and started, actually pain is the number one. That's that's why most people go and buy products. It's that, you know, the doctor just said, okay, well, you know, you've been consuming nothing but Big Macs and sodas for the last 10 years. And if you don't stop, you've got your heart disease is going to kill you. Well, now that's pain motivated. You're like, well, hell, I'm, I'm going to get started. What's important is so pain is a great way to get started, but you want to quickly move your mindset towards what are you gaining within about two weeks to 17 days. If you don't make that transition early, your motivation is lost because you started to you know, work out or do whatever the case is. You're not seeing the results right away. We need to flip someone's mindset towards what are you going to be gaining, looking towards that, that future, seeing your growth constantly. Because if you're only looking at you know, how close the lion is to you and chasing you, then of course, motivation is lost. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. How much were you motivated by um, the desire to uh, prove something? Big time. You know, my backstory is rooted in a lot of trauma. I know. And I, uh, you know, and, it's, and I'm actually at this place now where I'm completely fine talking about it, which is actually a recent experience. But I was um, sexually assaulted when I was 12 
at a church camp by two men over the course of a couple of days. And the kind of more sinister part of that, which uh, it's already sinister, but they, uh, they videotaped that experience. And now it's a very, and this is, again, this is, you know, 30 years ago, but that video is a very popular video in the kind of pedophile community and in kind of the the dark web. And I get, um, yeah, I get consistently messaged in my email with, uh, with gifts of that and, you know, people trying to torment you or whatever. And, uh, yeah, but I, for the first time, so I lived with that, didn't share it with anybody until, um, about 17 months ago, September of 2017, September 4th, specifically, I shared it for the first time with a close friend of mine here in New York, because I had just been, you know, running the red line of life. And I had just, for the previous nine months, had been going through a really, really hard, challenging, just some tough stuff in my business. I was going through a major lawsuit with my former business partner that I was suing. And we had a, uh, a new boy that showed up. We've got three little kids and, and that, and the childbirth was a very tough one on my wife and, and, and Charlie. And so that was kind of tough to see. And it just, it, it was just bringing a lot of that stuff that I pushed down for a long time to the surface. And I basically, you know, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I, you know, uh, I had a, I ended up writing just on December 31st of 2018 a long Facebook post about my experience of life and, you know, how I had many suicide attempts and, you know, this trauma that happened to me. And, and really the message was a lot around, you know, don't do what I did. Like, don't hold on to this because I'm actually coming out the other side of facing this thing down and, you know, being able to drop this weight and this trauma and this shame and guilt that sort of naturally people have to hold on or they don't, not naturally, but they hold on to through that experience of trauma that isn't theirs to hold on to. Like, I mean, there's nothing that I need to shame myself with. I didn't do it, but to get rid of that, I just was encouraging people to, if there is something that they can get help with, to get help with it, get professional help with it. Cause yeah, while I have been able to navigate and, you know, achieve some things in my life, I wonder what I else I could have done, you know, if I would have been able to, you know, do this sooner, but yeah. So, you know, that is a big part of, how I've been shaped and, but then also probably why it's given me one superpower, which is an extraordinarily high level of empathy towards other people and why it's also, I would say why I've become and why I became a really good coach and confidant and advisor to people, because you are just so sensitive to the fact that, you know, human beings are nuanced, they're complicated, you know, everything in life isn't just more about just do it and work harder. And, you know, there's just some people need to be handled with a little bit more gentleness and to understand that. So it, it turned me into a, a good coach, but you know, it would have been great if I had maybe dealt with it a lot sooner. So yeah, yeah. But it's never too late, you know? And yeah, exactly. Don't beat yourself up over. Oh no, I, I don't, I, yeah. I, I don't. And you know, it's, it's, what's amazing is, uh, you know, after I, you know, it's, it's actually just been one month since I wrote that. I know. And I wrote that I was sitting down and I say it in the post, even I was sitting down to, I talk about this concept of scripting with specifically my sports clients, you know, pro clients where visualization is always and using our imagination is obviously very powerful. What people don't get about visualization is it's, it's actually quite difficult for people to learn as a skill. People just accept that, oh, you should just visualize. Well, it's not that simple. Visualization is a challenging thing because most people's context of visualization is they've just sort of left, let their, their monkey brain, you know, run the circles in their heads. And now you're deliberately 
creating the movie in your mind. And that's a challenge for people. And so scripting, which is sitting down and actually writing out that story of what you want things to look is actually way more powerful because it slows down the cognitive process. And when you're writing something down, it's, it actually activates your mind in a different way and allows you to, to paint more color with it. So anyways, that's what I was doing. I was sitting down to script out my 2019 and how I wanted it to look. And, you know, of course I've got the book coming out and this is going to be a new experience. And instead that post is what came out of me. And I mean, I'm fine with, you I mean, you can put it in the show notes too, if people wanted to go and read just my personal experience, cause I've got nothing to hide with it. But now a month later, it's amazing how much more grace I feel like I can walk through life with. It's just dumping all of that baggage at the end of 2018. And I said in the post, I just didn't want to carry this into 2019. And I'm, I'm, I'm highly motivated by, you know, if there's something that I can be world-class at, I'd much rather if of anything be the most world-class dad to my three little kids than anything else. So I was motivated to not give them secondhand trauma because it's sort of the idea that we have this, we have this trauma and then we end up acting it out and kind of onto other people. And, you know, just like secondhand smoke isn't deserved, secondhand trauma isn't deserved as well. So I just felt it was my responsibility to do that for my kids. Yeah. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing that. And think of all the benefit to the world that came from healthily integrating that, finally integrating Mm -hmm. that into the rest of who you are. I mean, it kind of gave you even more superpower, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've always been very mindful of the fact that Sometimes the perception of me, and I don't create this because I don't, I never pretend that I'm perfect. In fact, I, I like kind of thinking myself as being massively imperfect, but I always take Really? Action. I don't pretend because I know I am. Yeah. <laughs> That's gold. That's my favorite part of this entire interview. <laughs> um, is, yeah. Uh, go on. Um, I, I don't, I don't need to pretend. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So I just know that I take a lot of imperfect action and, and, you know, I think the majority of our answers are found on the field of play of life, not sitting on the sidelines trying to think about them or, or outthink them. So, uh, but I, but I'm mindful of this idea that, you know, perception of me is that I'm polished and I'm put together and it's, you know, whatever, I wear a blazer with a pocket square and that's just how I like to dress or I've got glasses on. And, and I don't do that. I never did that as a way to try to impress people. But to your point about that vulnerability, it has definitely, I, I, one guy had a post, he's like, you know, I've always respected you and I've always liked the work that you do. Now I absolutely love you because of the person that you've had to become and just sharing that. And, you know, and since that post too, you know, I've had seven conversations with people who reached out to me that were suicidal and I'm talking like really high achievers. In fact, I know two of them are actually in our circle together that reached out and just for, for help. And, you know, that was a great win for sure. Mm. So, well, yes, thanks again. And, you know, these common forces you talk about, they call them the hidden forces of the enemy. Yeah. I imagine there are things you've been grappling with personally as you know, being human as well, you know, like imposter syndrome, yep. tribal narratives. Yeah. Let's discuss some of them. You know, I think a lot of the listeners will resonate with that. Yeah. There's three really hidden. I talk about there's common forces. They're the ones that right. we always talk about, right? The common ones are doubt and worry and the judgment of others and, and criticism and fitting in and, and things like that, that those are the common forces that the, you know, tricky little enemy likes to use to pull us into the ordinary world and away and off our track that we want to kind of march down. But then there's more sinister hidden forces that operate a lot more below the surface. Mm. 
imposter syndrome is actually now being talked about a lot more. It's almost that, common. It's almost it's a almost, common force. It, it's almost become right. a common force. You're exactly right. But you know that imposter syndrome is just is that idea that you you don't actually give yourself any credit for the achievements that you have. You downplay what you've achieved to things like luck. You know, right place, right time. Of course, I was supposed to do that because I was X, Y, Z, whatever the case might be. But the other two that are hidden and sinister, the other one I talk about is tribal narratives. And tribal narratives are things like, well, my family has never been an entrepreneur, so why would I be an entrepreneur? Or, you know, people that are Jewish don't do that, and so I'm not going to go and pursue that. Or it's, you know, racial then, you know, well, a black person can't do that or, you know, uh, an Indian person doesn't go and do this. Or, mm. and, and they operate at such an unconscious level with people that they don't even know that they're acting through them, right? And so that's why I created that model that sits inside of that uh, in chapter number three to kind of give context to people. Because I think, you know, for people like you and me that are out there helping people, context really matters. The moment someone goes, oh, now I get it. I see how that's built. Now you can actually start to self-diagnose and you can start to work with it yourself because it gives context, gives form and substance to something. Mm. And bringing up the fact that tribal narratives really are very common ways that s stop people, but they're often hidden below the surface of other things like, I just don't believe in myself. Well, no, no, no. Let's not throw yourself under the bus here. Let's really take a look at this and see if it's something else. And then that third you know, hidden force that I talk about is, of course, personal trauma, that narrative that gets created, that shame, shame and guilt rule many, many people when they have dealt with really tough trauma. And again, all human beings have had trauma. We've all experienced trauma at some point. You know, there is because trauma can come in the form of a car accident, even witnessing something there's it gets processed as as trauma. But then there's degrees and depths of trauma too. Like obviously, you know, the one that I had to navigate through is a pretty deep one, especially when it hasn't been, you know, diagnosed and pulled apart for 30 years. And, you know, however, just because I would be working with someone and I would poke and, you know, and I'm crawling around between the six inches, you end up poking something that's pretty sensitive to people. Mm. And, and I'm like, okay, perfect. That is not my skill set. But I'm going to get them to somebody who can help them navigate that if they're willing to do that. That doesn't mean that just because you have that trauma, mm. that you need to stop pursuing things and getting yourself out there. And that's where that using an alter ego, you know what? If you want to suspend the disbelief right now that you can do this, but if you want to tap into your inner Captain America and allow the him to pull those qualities that you do have inside of you out onto that field of play, it creates that great suspension of disbelief. And you're simply just tapping into the creative imagination, which is such a powerful force to beat resistance. You know, so many people, when you think about force, there's resistance is a strong force and it's typically propped up by unconscious stuff. Those tribal narratives, that trauma possibly for someone, that imposter syndrome or the more common forces and resistance sits there. And what the personal development or self-help world for the longest time has said, we're going to meet that resistance, that force with the force of willpower. Mm -hmm. Just do it. And that's the equivalent because willpower is very much a conscious thought. Resistance sits in the unconscious. 
And that's the equivalent of the mouse staring down the elephant, right? Best of luck with that. Now, have some people used willpower to overpower some resistance? Absolutely. But it is extraordinarily rare. So if that is how most people are operating, what is a force and a power that's stronger than resistance? Our creative imagination. The truly the thing that we are innately gifted with as human beings. And I talk about how the creative imagination is like the back door to performance. Resistance doesn't even see it coming. Mm. And one of the tools we use is just an alter ego to help make that back door open up to suspend our own disbelief and act to and through someone and something else to get ourselves out there like we know that we can. And I'll give you an example for myself specifically so that people have another idea of how this has been applied. And again, I've got like tons of stories in the books of people throughout history that have used it. But for myself, you know, I am a challenger personality when it comes to how I work. I'm dealing with pro athletes, Olympic athletes, you know, public figures, people with, you know, very strong type A personalities. But I'm, I'm a challenger. They've got nothing but yes people around them typically, um, people who are trying to kowtow to them. I don't do that. And, you know, so if I'm spending eight hours in my working day with that personality, when I go home, it's very easy for me to just continue that momentum going. The last thing my kids need is confident, decisive, articulate Todd showing up who is a challenger, right? They want fun, playful, get on the floor and play with them, Todd. And um, my middle daughter, Sophie, one day, uh, she's got a fantastic emotional bandwidth. She can have fantastic highs and she can have these tantrums that can last a very long time. Mm. And she would get into this tantrum and then, so that's a force, right? And then I would bring that kind of adult parent force to the situation and I'm going to lord over that and get her to, you know, stop. Well, that never works. And, you know, one day I caught myself doing that and I was like, wait, Todd, again, this isn't working. So how, what's going to be a better mode for you? And to deal with this, I call it in the book, the moment of impact. That's a moment of impact for me as a parent to, you know, calm her down. And immediately I went to, well, I, I would want to much rather bring a gentle self to the situation. And Mr. Rogers came in my head immediately. And so that's who inspires me as a dad to act through is Mr. Rogers. So the very next day, same tantrum, the same type of thing that's going on. I did exactly what Mr. Rogers would do. Got down on one knee, reached out, grabbed her, pulled her in for a hug. She melted in eight seconds. What would have typically been a 12 minute long tantrum and me being just as agitated evaporated right away. And then just like any kid, she was off playing, doing, you know, forgetting about whatever it was that she was upset about. And it was such a great feedback loop to close with me. I'm like, yep, this is so powerful. It just, all I did was for that second, tap into that creative imagination act to and through Mr. Rogers. And now it's, now I really think about that's the gentle self that needs to show up for my kids. Awesome. So, okay. So how can we empower our listeners to be that self they want to be? Give them two missions. One involves a coffee shop, right? (laughs) Well, first thing is, first mission is let's always, we build out this alter ego in context to a specific field of play, right? Mm -hmm. So Todd's self that I bring to my home and with my kids is different than, of course, that self that I bring to, you know, operate at my best in, in work. So what field of play is most frustrating you right now? Would you like to most use this idea for? That's the first step. Always context. And then the second one is, okay, well, what are the qualities that you most want to be showing up, you know, on that field? Mm-hmm. Who might already embody them? Is it Captain America? Is it Wonder Woman? Is it 
like Kobe Bryant bringing the black mamba onto the basketball court? Or is it any one of a number of different forms of inspiration could come from fiction, could come from TV, could come from, you know, your own family. I'm deeply connected to my Nana. I just loved her spirit. And so there's parts of her qualities that, you know, I used early on. So what are those qualities you want to bring and show up? And then go out and activate it. I talk about in the book that we use a totem, an artifact. You know, I used glasses as a way of representing. It actually taps into a natural psychological phenomenon we all have called enclosed cognition, where we as human beings, we attach meaning to clothing. And when you put it on, you actually start to adopt the traits of that. So the Kellogg School of Management did this. They did this study on enclosed cognition where they brought a bunch of students into a room, got them to do it. This Have you ever seen that kind of puzzle where it's got the word of a color and then you have to say, but the word is actually colored in a different color? So it's the word green, but it's in yellow. Yeah, the Stroop test. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay, so it's actually challenging because the first thing that your, Very your brain... Yeah, the first thing your brain reads is actually the color, not the actual word itself. So they gave them this uh, this test, and I think it was like 25 boxes of of words, and you know, tracked their attention and their accuracy and the amount of mistakes that they made and how quickly they did it. So the students came in, they did it individually, and then they leave. Then they brought in another group of students. This time, when they came in, they handed them a white coat and they told them to put it on, and that it was a painter's coat. And then they got them to do it. So then, you know, track the information and they leave. Then they brought in another group of people. And this time they handed them the same white coat, but told them it was a lab coat or a doctor's coat. And then they got them to do the, uh, the test. Now, the results between the plain clothes people, the first group, and the painter coat people, no difference whatsoever. Why? Because the enclosed meaning of wearing a painter's coat is that you're probably tapping into a more creative self in that moment. Creativity isn't what was going to help you master that test. However, the third group, the lab coat wearing, doctor coat wearing people, they did it in less than half the time than the other two groups, and they made half the amount of mistakes as the other group. Why? Because having on a lab coat, people started to enclose themselves into the traits of someone who's more focused, methodical, careful, and detailed four qualities that are going to help you do that particular kind of test. And so all we're doing and what I'm trying to work with people on and what's inside the book is we're simply tapping into the things that are already there as human beings. And I'm, you know, with using a totem or an artifact and putting on the glasses. Oh, shit. You have the glasses. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> wait, wait. Hold on. I'm going to take a picture of both of us in our superpower remote. Oh, cool. Um, uh, and so all I'm doing, all I did early on was I ascribed meaning to these glasses. And they meant confident, decisive, articulate Todd. And I was stepping in through my inner Joseph Campbell, who's a hero of mine, Abraham Lincoln. And that's what I was showing up. And so my point is, is whatever your superpowers and those qualities are, is there a totem that you can put on that you can wear? I've got clients who, you know, have a pebble in their pocket from their family farm in Iowa because they're tapping into the values and the character set of that group of people that they're bringing to the table and honoring their family name. And so what could it be for you? And then we're going to go out and have a mission. So it's like whatever that um, uh, self is that you're now creating, go to the local coffee shop. And whether it's a Starbucks or anywhere else, and order a coffee as that version of you. So I can walk in with my glasses on and just um, uh, 
in a confident and decisive way, order and move off to the side, right? And the thing is, is this isn't you being fake. This is about you playing more with what you've already got inside of you just to see what results might change for you. This isn't about me tricking anybody. It's not about me being deceitful. And again, we as human beings, we're always unfolding. That is, we're always spiraling up. As a generation of people, we're always hopefully getting better and better and better, right? And, you know, That's what I struggle with, with people saying, well, this new generation is, no, we want the new generation to be better than ours. Because if we didn't, if, if they don't, then we've screwed up somehow right? We're as human beings, we're always spiraling up. So same thing with ourselves. We're always unfolding and finding out new parts of ourselves. And this is just actively playing with an idea that already exists in ourselves to see what we can and cannot do. Oh, that's so good. I'm going to end <laughs> with this and even uh, an also good quote from your book. At the end of your life, you won't remember the thoughts or intentions you had. You remember the actions you took. You'll judge yourself by how you showed up, by what you did, what you said, how you acted, and whether you performed the way you knew you could in any of the stages of life. Thank you, Todd, Richard, you know, <laughs> all these things are you. And yeah. um, thank you for inspiring so many people. You're a champ. Thank you. And for being my podcast today. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.